Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with unanswered questions swirling around the Mar-a-Lago document seizure, which, wishful thinking aside for those who want to see Trump dragged off in an orange jumpsuit or a straitjacket, is looking more and more like Trump is in big trouble. Joining us to assess the former president's jeopardy is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a staff reporter for the Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And we will discuss his article at the National Memo, Trump's Secret Mar-a-Lago Files, The Unanswered Questions. Then we'll look into whether the law has finally caught up with Donald Trump and whether he can lie his way out of looming felony charges as those close to him like Rudy Giuliani, who testified for hours today, are now targets of various investigations. Joining us is Jacob Halbrun, a senior editor at The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic, and we will discuss his article at Politico. He was dismissed as a conservative kook. Now the Supreme Court is embracing his blueprint. And another at the national interest, will the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago embolden or destroy Trump? Then finally, we'll speak with Stephanie Moravchik, who is a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, whose research explores the intersections of politics with class, family, and religion. She's the author of American Protestantism in an Age of Psychology, as well as Trump's Democrats, a political ethnography of three blue strongholds that flipped Republican in the 2016 election. She has spent the last year working on a book with John Shields about Liz Cheney's Wyoming and the future of the American right, and we will discuss her article with John Shields at the New York Times, Liz Cheney, and the twilight of the old Republican elite. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He's been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he has an article at the National Memo, Trump's Secret Mar-a-Lago Files, The Unanswered Questions. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sidney Blumenthal. Glad to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Sidney. And given that it looks more and more like there's some serious national security issues involved in these documents and that the FBI seized a week ago Monday, including in the, uh, the latest not so much designs, but whatever the the latest nuclear weapon systems that the U.S. are developing. And today, of course, in in Atlanta, Rudy Giuliani spent a lot of time on the witness stand. Weisselberg, the Trump Organization's accountant, has had to plead guilty. It looks as if the law is finally catching up with Donald Trump. So wishful thinking aside, many in our audience would love to see him hauled off in an orange jumpsuit or a straitjacket. But what do you think his jeopardy really is? Well, I don't think we've quite reached the um, last montage scenes of Godfather 1 yet. But we're getting there. And I think that um, many of these uh, cases are taking on the aspect of the inexorable. And you can go through each one of them, but um, they all add up to 
I think um, Donald Trump facing likely indictment um, in a number of places uh, from, uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani, uh, if he's a target, that means that uh, Donald Trump is almost certainly a target in Georgia. And if Giuliani gets indicted, um, can Trump be far behind? Uh, in the case of Mar-a-Lago, we have no idea what the dimensions of this are and ha- uh, the depth of seriousness of uh, what's happened. And the fact that the Department of Justice is fighting so um, hard not to release the affidavit shows that there's a lot of material there. Now, naturally, they usually don't release affidavits, but what's among the scant information that's come out in that battle where Trump wants the affidavit out, which I think is just purely performance art because it's not going to come out. But what we have learned is there are multiple uh, witnesses to what went on, which means that there are not one, but more than one informants inside Mar-a-Lago who are telling the government uh, about um, serious wrongdoing being committed there by we don't know who. Well, the court filing by the Department of Justice to block the unsealing of the affidavit, the person who filed that was Jay Bratt, the Chief of Justice Department's Counterintelligence and Export Control Section. He visited Mar-a-Lago on June the 3rd with three FBI agents and they were shown the storage areas and the boxes containing the material, etc. Obviously not all of it. And at one point, Trump you know, said, anything you need, let, let us know, offered them a Coke and all this kind of stuff. Then a few days later, one of Trump's attorneys signs a written statement saying that the material marked as classified has been returned to the government. Now, he's clearly in big trouble. And then on the June the 8th, uh, Bratt sent Trump's team an email asking for stronger locks be installed on the storage room. So, and then, of course, on June the 19th, shortly thereafter, Trump named uh, Cash Patel and John Solomon as his representatives for access to presidential records of my administration. And at least in the case of Cash Patel, He's a protege of Devin Nunez and has done everything in the world to obfuscate and contradict and bury, if he could, the ties between Trump and Russia. So what's going on there? Do you think uh, there's some rumors that they also squirreled away a lot of uh, material related to Trump and Russia, whether they want to (laughs) rewrite history or bury it? I don't know. What do you think? Well, um, Trump's attorney, uh, who was a former anchor for uh, the far right wing uh, outlet, uh, the One American Network, um, he, he's having trouble getting reputable attorneys, um, uh, told the government that there was not classified information. Um, but the attorney was not the one who made that up. The attorney was. Um, telling the government what she was told by her client. Um, That's a felony on the part of the client. That is a felony. Uh, Paul Manafort went to prison for exactly that felony. So there are additional potential crimes being committed here. In the case of Cash Patel and John Solomon, um, this gets curiouser and curiouser. Cash Patel not only was involved in the cover-up of um, and the uh, attempted suppression of the investigation into uh, Russian interference in the U.S. federal presidential election of 2016 and um, any Trump contacts with Russians, uh, but while working uh, as the top um, investigative aide for Congressman Devin Nunes of California on the House Intelligence Committee. But then Trump moved him around um, to do his um, dirty work uh, within the government uh, uh, in the um, 
in the uh, uh, in national intelligence and in the Department of Defense. And at one point, Trump wanted to make this character um, director of CIA to do his bidding. Um, Cash Patel is deeply implicated in the events of January 6th. He was questioned by the committee. We have not seen all of his deposition, to say the least. And we don't really know everything that he uh, done. But we do know that there was a good deal of talk about using the Department of Defense um, as uh, uh, to weaponize it uh, in order to install Trump again as president um, and possibly, as Mike Flynn said, invoking the Insurrection Act. Now, Patel is, is designated as an administrator of Trump's archives. This is ridiculous on its face. He has no professional background in this. His, his background is of um, obstruction and hiding materials and, um, and doing Trump's bidding. The other person named is even more ridiculous than Cash Patel, John Solomon, who uh, was deeply involved in the, um, in the in in Trump's attempt to uh, coerce Ukrainian President Zelensky about javelin missiles in exchange for fabricated dirt about candidate Joe Biden that led to the first impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, and John Solomon was one of the operatives in that. He's a so-called journalist. He's ruined his reputation. He's known for fabricating materials. The idea that he's overseeing archival material and uh, that could be classified is absurd on its face. Both of them have great vulnerabilities here. I, uh, and they, if they haven't, ought to lawyer up right away. Um, as uh, as uh, the uh, deputy attorney general Hirschman has testified before the January 6th committee, as he told John Eastman, who was implicated in the, you know, in the coup, he said, "You better, you know, you better get a good criminal lawyer." And I think the same thing applies to Cash Patel and John Solomon. And don't think that Donald Trump wouldn't let them hang out to dry as fall guys, too. Well, it looks like Cash Patel and Isako and Watnick, when Trump sent them across to the Pentagon, they were there during the January the 6th specifically to prevent the National Guard from helping out the Capitol Police who are desperately calling for help. Well, I assume that the January 6th committee is looking into this and that we will learn about this uh, right. and and his role. And Hirschman, of course, uh, is now going to testify in the case down in, in uh, Atlanta on uh, Trump's efforts to find, what was it, find me 11,780 votes? Yes, and Lindsey Graham, a senator from mm. South Carolina who is uh, on again, off again, on again, Trump loyalist, is being compelled to testify by the federal court. He claims he was engaged in simple, you know, uh, senatorial duties. Well, mm. that has not been, we'll find out from his testimony. Right. Uh, but he was trying to suppress the vote in Fulton County for Joe Biden and asked about that. Who asked him to do this? <laughs> We're going to learn. He's going to, you better tell the truth. Right. I hope again Lindsey Graham has a good criminal attorney. So just to, in the last couple of minutes, just to sort of wrap this up uh, in the broader sense, I mean, there are reports now from uh, Newsweek that Trump had a private stash of documents that he cherry-picked, that he kept in his safe that are now in the hands of the Department of Justice. And I spoke yesterday with a former deputy attorney general in charge of the National Security Division, and he said there's a real possibility that Trump was trying to use these documents as a bargaining chip with the DOJ, a get-out-of-jail-free card. But since the documents have been seized, he's lost that leverage, if that's the case. So, again, it looks as if, finally, the, the law is catching up on this guy. Am, am I being too optimistic here? Well, 
uh, Trump may be in the La Brea tar pits um, as he struggles uh, to get out uh, and um, digs in deeper and sinks. Um, you know, every single thing that people raise leads to further questions. Um, he had a safe. He kept documents there. Did, who selected the documents that he was secreting in his safe? Was it him alone? Was it his so-called administrators, Cash Patel and John Solomon? Who, uh, I mean, uh, what, was, what was the criteria for hiding documents? Where, where, what were the documents? Was he destroying documents? Was he using information off the documents for uh, personal profit and gain? I just raised the question. There was an international golf tournament at Trump's Bedminster golf course, and the Saudis paid for it. We don't know how much. Was this a case of money laundering? Was this a case of a payoff for services rendered? Uh, what was the information that might have been provided? Did it relate to nuclear technology? Did it relate to not only U.S. nuclear technology, but that of foreign powers who were uh, friendly to the United States that we know of, such as Israel? So we don't know anything at this point. There are a lot of unanswered questions, and Trump is is caught in the tar pits right now. And I believe at some point we're going to get answers, and there are there's a lot of law attached to this. At the end of the day, I really cannot imagine that the Justice Department would decide as it did with David Petraeus in his violation of handling of classified materials that they would offer him a plea deal with a misdemeanor. And nor do I believe that Trump would accept such a deal. I don't. I think that the whole situation has gotten uh, far beyond that. And remember, there is a sitting grand jury right now in this matter. Well, Cindy Blumenthal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sidney Blumenthal as a former assistant senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He's been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars and the Rise of the Counter-Establishment and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856-1860. to And he has an article at the National Memo, Trump's Secret Mar-a-Lago Files, the unanswered questions. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into whether the law has finally caught up with Donald Trump and whether he can lie his way out of looming felony charges as those close to him, like Rudy Giuliani, who testified for hours today, are now targets of various investigations. I break in the rocks in the hot sun I fought the law and the Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jacob Halbron, who is a senior editor at The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for The Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic. And he has an article at Politico. He was dismissed as a conservative kook. Now the Supreme Court is embracing his blueprint and another at the national interest, will the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago embolden or destroy Trump? Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Harbert. Thanks, Ian. So, Jacob, to answer the question in your article, will the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago embolden or destroy Trump? Of course, a lot of liberals indulge in the wishful thinking that Trump will be either let out of Mar-a-Lago in an orange jumpsuit or a straitjacket. But at this point... It seems like the latest reporting from Bill Arkin at Newsweek, he's got pretty good connections with in the intelligence world, suggests that Trump had a private stash of documents in his safe, which the FBI opened, and that might have been either 
a move on his part to monetize secrets or to use secrets for blackmail purposes. That's one thing that's emerging now. The other possibility is that he was stashing all those documents in effect as a get-out-of-jail-free card as a bargaining chip with the DOJ where he could negotiate his way out of whatever felony convictions might be coming his way. And now, of course, since the FBI seized all those documents, Trump has lost his leverage. So do any of those scenarios strike you as plausible? All three do. So he's in big trouble. He is, and I think he knows it. The The other reports that we hear from the Trump circle is that they are frustrated and frightened by the fact that they have no insight into exactly what the Department of Justice is doing right now. You saw Trump tried to contact Merrick Garland with a veiled threat just before the raid took place at Mar-a-Lago. And he was saying that he wanted to bring down the temperature of the country, which is, of course, laughable. There's been no one who's done more to heap extra logs on the inferno than Trump himself. But this time, I think it's going to be tough for Trump to wriggle out of his predicament, particularly when you consider he had to take the Fifth Amendment in New York. The entire Trump enterprise could be shut down by the New York Attorney General as a criminal enterprise, and he faces a severe problems in Georgia where he clearly was trying to engage in election tampering. So in Georgia, though, do you think he can use his friend Rudy as a scapegoat? Rudy, of course, is now a target, not a witness. I think well, he's, he's testifying today, is he not? Yes, that raises the interesting question, just how loyal will the members of Trump's entourage remain to him? The incentive for them to talk, or as he would put it, rat him out, grows by the day. And again, Trump does not enjoy the protections that he had while president. There is no bill bar to run interference for him anymore. He is vulnerable, and I think he knows it. So he's nevertheless endangering FBI officers or agents, I suppose. I mean, the most outrageous thing was that the search warrant from the FBI he was given, which is the protocol, he was given an unredacted and the only unredacted, I think, uh, version of it, at least made public, and then he immediately passed it on to Breitbart. So you don't think that his reaching out to the FBI was in response to sober Republicans warning him that it would not be a good look for him to have a lot of FBI agents and their families murdered. Uh, That's not exactly a good look for the... uh, party of law and order. No, it isn't. Well, vice, former Vice President Mike Pence with, it just came out in defense of the rank-and-file FBI. They're trying to draw a distinction between the leadership of the FBI and the actual personnel. I, I don't think it's very persuasive. The problem for Trump is that he can, he and his associates can concoct 20 different excuses and engage in all the obfuscatory language they want about this investigation. But it is now a legal matter. And the, the, the consequences for Trump are coming. And he is simply engaging in bluster. And according to the Washington Post, he can't even get any credible lawyers to work for him anymore because he's such an unruly client And, of course, he never pays his bills. Well, he's sure gotten away with a lot over his business career. He's been one step ahead of the sheriff, and in his political career, uh, he's been one step ahead of uh, all the investigations, Mueller, two impeachments. So it's an amazing situation if, indeed, this is all coming to an end. So what would that involve then? I mean, an indictment? A trial? It's an amazing story. It will be written about for 100 years because you essentially had a con man, which is the title of Maggie Haberman's new book, Confidence Man, ascend to the Oval Office. We've never witnessed anything like it. 
But remember that Trump's mentor, Roy Cohn, was debarred from practicing as a lawyer at the end of his career. Eventually, these things catch up to you. Trump is a disciple of Roy Cohn and ultimately Joe McCarthy. He's pursuing the same tactics, which is vilify your opponents and hurl the charges that have been directed at you against them. Now, if Trump is indicted, I do not believe that there will be a civil war, as, as he is claiming. I think the balloon will be pricked. There may be scattered or isolated episodes of violence. But no, there will not be a civil war in America. Trump will be under most likely more than one indictment. And again, I'm speaking with Jacob Halbrun, who is a senior editor at the National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic. And he has an article at Politico. He was dismissed as a conservative kook. Now the Supreme Court is embracing his blueprint. And neither at the National Interest will the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago emboldened or destroy Trump. So you mentioned uh, Maggie Haberman's new book, The Con Man. It's interesting, though, to recall, Jacob, that when Trump got the uh, Republican nomination, Mitt Romney went public and made a statement which was really so accurate and so comprehensive about who Trump is. He referred to him as a con man, and he said, you know, if you if you vote for this guy, it's about as worthless as a degree from Trump University. He laid it out chapter and verse. It's not as if people haven't known this. So I guess when you talk about historians, uh, surely historians are going to be scratching their heads trying to figure out why did so many American people be, get conned by this con man? Why is this nation so gullible? And how come there is this this kind of cult following he has that seems to be impervious to informational facts? Well... Remember, Ian, that no one can be conned who doesn't want to be. The, the, the con man is playing into your latent wishes. And we do have a culture of game shows and the apprentice show that Trump was on. And I think any historian who looks back is, is going to focus, as, as some reporters like Mark Fisher at The Washington Post have already done, just at the central role that The Apprentice and Jeff Zucker played in, in shaping the image of Trump as a successful businessman. We know that the man is, is, a, is essentially a crook and a business failure, but his image was decisively reshaped with that show. And Trump appeals to the streak of hucksterism in America. And that was a strong theme in the 19th century as well. He is a brilliant showman. And at some point, however, the illusion is dispelled. And I think that the that this is Trump's final act. Well, indeed, uh, Herman Melville wrote a really wo- wonderful novel, The Confidence Man which is not as well known, of course, as Moby Dick and others. But uh... Well, it's a, it's a brilliant novel, and it does get at the an aspect of the American character that, um, you know, the more ebullient side of America, we, we tend to downplay it. But there is this. And Mark Twain, too, if you look at Huckleberry Finn, has all these passages about the Duke and the Dauphin pretending to be Shakespearean actors and essentially stealing from these local towns as they travel through America. So there is a dark side to America. And Trump represents it. He knows how to exploit it. And he has been very successful in uh, catering to it. But again, as I said, I think that the force of the law, the wheels of justice are grinding. And they're now starting to move more quickly. And I don't think that he can extricate himself from this net of criminality that he uh, entangled himself in. So, Jacob Harbin, let's turn then to your other article, uh, which is at Politico. 
He was dismissed as a conservative kook. Now the Supreme Court is embracing his blueprint. An article about L. Brent Bazell. And interestingly enough, the other powerful influence on the Catholic right, of course, has been Leonard Leo, who, as the head of the Federalists, uh, has created this massive dark money fund and used that to get uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch onto the Supreme Court, which is now controlled by six ultra-conservatives. So that is quite an achievement, but Leonard Leo just uh, recently announced that he was going to throw his weight now through the and with the Judicial Crisis Network, which is the dark money slush fund, which plutocrats like the Koch brothers spend millions on, I think about half a billion dollars that they've had in their slush fund, He's now going to concentrate on the next Supreme Court term where they're going to use this bogus legal theory to give states largely controlled by Republican legislatures the ability to basically decide elections free from any court review. And this could be the death blow to American democracy. So what motivates people like uh, Leonard Leo, apart from his Opus Dei sort of Catholic conservatism, which, of course, L. Brent Bazell also shared in that uh, same conservatism, uh, Bazell being fascinated by the uh, Spanish fascist, and after all, it was a Spanish fascist priest who created Opus Dei. The, uh, many conservatives balked at my piece because they didn't want to be associated with the history. L. Brent Bazell was the brother-in-law of William F. Buckley, Jr., the founder of the National Review. And he was a convert to Catholicism and a student of the same professor as Buckley at, at Yale University uh, in, the, in the late 1940s and collaborated with Buckley on a book called McCarthy and His Enemies that defended McCarthy as a victim of liberal political correctness. They didn't use that word, but that's what they meant. And Bazell pioneered many of the strategies we see today, including the first assault on an abortion clinic at George Washington University, when he was arrested for that later, late in his life. Uh, yeah, he's holding a five-foot wooden cross, wasn't he, beating people yeah. with it? Yes, he was, he, they were called Spanish Carlists, and he was wearing a red beret. Uh, you know, he became seduced by his own religious and ideological fervor. He was, he was quite brilliant, but he saw America as descending into a cesspool of moral decadence, uh, much as you hear from conservatives today. And his particular... What he fastened upon, he was the first to launch the war against abortion, even before Roe versus Wade had been approved was was uh, approved by the Supreme Court. So he was he was an early, very early figure here. And my contention is that he set the stage for the current Supreme Court's uh, ruling in Dobbs in which it allows the states essentially to abolish abortion under the fig leaf of states' rights. And this was the old conservative line, as we remember, when they resisted any reform and wanted to retain the Jim Crow South. They always said it was about states' rights. So I don't think the conservative movement has actually changed all that much. It's just gotten more influential and powerful. But did the plutocrats like the Koch brothers and others after the defeat of Barry Goldwater, did they come to the conclusion that they'd never take over via the legislative and executive branches through elections and that the Supreme Court was the easiest route to gain the power that they want? And they found people like Brent Brazell and Leonard Leo all too willing to carry the water for the plutocracy and, and also for defending states' right and the Jim Crow South. I mean, what you have in this Supreme Court today 
is a combination of laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. Yes, it is. It, I think the conservatives did realize, particularly the Federalist Society and Mitch McConnell, that they could essentially decapitate the uh, Democratic administrations by gaining control of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not only intent on fomenting a culture war in the United States, particularly if you look at Justice Alito and his contempt for for liberties in the U.S. and his, his dogmatic what he's essentially fomenting a, a religious war. Um, so we are in this predicament, a decades-long push by the Federalist Society to capture the courts. However, I do see an upside. If Biden, if the Democrats retain the Senate in the midterm elections, Biden has been very assiduous in, st- in stalking the federal judiciary. So I'm not sure that below the Supreme Court level, I think Republican gains can be rolled back. Well, let's hope that is the case and that Leonard Leo's next project with the next um, session of the Supreme Court, which is to, to take away the ability for courts to review election cases, in particularly in states that are controlled by Republicans. And you've got... Ten. That is that is a very dangerous development, and you're absolutely right. If that is pushed through, and Alito has indicated his receptivity to it as well as uh, Clarence Thomas, you will have state legislatures essentially determining the will of the people. They can overturn the vote of a state. Biden would not have won the last election if this crackpot doctrine had been in effect that the Supreme Court is even talking about it is an extremely alarming sign. And then if you you have to combine that with the fact that in 10 states, and most of them swing states, you've had these election deniers stop the steal Trump cultists uh, elected to important positions, mostly secretaries of state and AGs. So they'll just decide that Trump won no matter what. So we're on right, a, or whoever, or whoever the candidate is. It yeah. doesn't have to be Trump. It could be DeSantis well, <laughs> or someone else. If our earlier conversation indicates that he's in such trouble, maybe he won't be their candidate. But there'll be a Trump clone. There's already one down in Florida. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. He has unleashed the inner id of the party. Uh, the other fascinating aspect of this, which we haven't talked about, is you mentioned. Leonard Leo, and I was talking about, we were talking about Bozell and Buckley. All of these people came from Yale University. So Yale has played a significant role, and the Ivy Leagues in general have played an immense role in modern conservatism, even, it is, even as it espouses populism. Uh, right. A lot of these got Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, they're all Ivy League graduates. So, so is. Um is the governor of Florida, right? Yes, and uh, he he's a Yaley. And uh, apparently, you know, the New Yorker article by Dexter Filkins on him makes it clear that uh, DeSantis is shrewd and cunning. Yeah, as opposed to feral like Trump is and, and reckless. So he's more dangerous. I thank you for joining us. Uh, I appreciate it, Jacob Palmer. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Halbrun, who's a senior editor at The National Interest, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. Previously, he was an editorial writer for The Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at The New Republic, and he has an article at Politico. He was dismissed as a conservative kook. Now the Supreme Court is embracing his blueprint. And another at The National Interest, Will the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago embolden or destroy Trump? We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into Liz Cheney's stand on principle compared to the Trumpster opportunist who beat her in Wyoming and why Wyoming Republicans are in the thrall of Donald Trump. I give you power over me. I give you power. Now gotta be free. I give you power. I 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephanie Moravchik, who is a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, whose research explores the intersections of politics with class, family, and religion. She's the author of American Protestantism in an Age of Psychology, as well as Trump's Democrats, a political ethnography of three blue strongholds that flipped Republican in the 2016 election. And she spent the last year working on a book with John Shields, about Liz Cheney's Wyoming and the future of the American right. And she has an article with John Shields at the New York Times, Liz Cheney and the Twilight of the Old Republican Elite. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephanie Muravchik. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Stephanie. And Wyoming has 215,000 registered Republicans compared to 36,000 registered Democrats. And Trump won Wyoming in 2020, by 43.3% above Joe Biden. So Harriet Hagman's victory means that she will be the lone House of Representatives congresswoman for the state uh, that Liz Cheney has held that position, what, for three terms now? Yes, you know, it's it's such a red state that often or, or almost always these days the Republican primary is really the election the election that matters, the general, is is not the significant election in Wyoming, generally. And I watched Liz Cheney's uh, concession speech last night, which was almost a rallying cry for a new chapter in her life. How did it strike you? Uh, well, I, I was quite impressed. She's got a lot of uh, heart for this, this, you know, this project of trying to really reduce uh, and hopefully eliminate Trump's influence in the Republican Party because she uh, doesn't think it's good for the Republican Party and she clearly doesn't think it's good for the United States as as a democratic republic. And so she is, you know, going to have to figure out ways to do that. And I guess she's exploring different avenues. Uh, she's got quite a war chest that she amassed for this campaign and um, didn't uh, need to spend it, wasn't able to spend it um, on this, you know, house race, but but clearly has some bigger picture of, of trying to uh, save the United States from a party that's turning more and more toward conspiracy theories and uh, and even violence. But you mentioned in your article that liberals have sort of got it wrong, and you mentioned uh, Thomas Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas, and the, the sort of hand-wringing about why do white working-class Americans vote against their interests. But in this case, I'm not sure that Liz Cheney is... I mean, she's obviously popular amongst some liberals and progressives simply because she's against Trump. But I think her appeal is is across the board, is it not, with liberals, independents, and conservatives in as much as she's a person of principle. She's standing up for principle. She's not a political opportunist. And in many ways, what happened yesterday in Wyoming is something that, as a nation, we have to look at in, in terms of what are the kind of people that are being elected to political office in this country, given that Harriet Hagman is clearly an opportunist uh, who fairly recently referred to Trump as a racist xenophobe. And she's like J.D. Vance as well, who's running for the Senate in Ohio, who also trashed Trump and then suddenly succumbed to the Stop the Steal and became a part of the Trump cult. So I see it uh, as a contrast between principle and opportunism. Yes, I mean, I wish uh, uh, it would be great if more Republicans saw it that way. I think, you know, they always say politics makes strange breadfellows, and this this development over the past uh, two years certainly has. Cheney was uh, uh, from a storied political family, very deeply conservative, and, um, you know, during the Bush administration, 
uh, liberals, Democrats really loathed the 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 Cheneys. Um, but now a lot of them are finding that they're celebrating her and uh, really giving her a kind of uh, second look, at least in terms of the principled stance that you that you mentioned. Um, the uh, I talked to people on the ground in Wyoming who said, you know, Democrats on the ground who said they were sort of debating amongst themselves whether or not to support her. They had been opposed to her for so long, but suddenly found themselves on the same side. On the other hand, of course, although she was Cheney, Liz Cheney was herself very popular among uh, Wyoming Republicans and conservatives up until the moment that she broke with Trump. Now they are denying that she's a conservative um, and, and somehow saying that she's liberal, that she's really a Democrat in disguise. And they don't see it as her stance as principled uh, and seem to only impute very bad motives to her decision that that although she had supported Trump's policies up until 2020, that she simply could not stand to uh, go along with his lying about the 2020 election, his disinformation, and uh, was going to oppose that and oppose it very firmly. Well, those on the Republican side that do oppose Trump don't fare well. Of the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, only two have survived. So he's got a pretty good scorecard, does he not, in terms of going after what he calls the rhinos? Yes, for for it's certain that Trump Trump's influence on the party remains quite strong. Uh, it means its strongest up until you know things are changing so fast on the ground, but it's it's been strongest, particularly with the kind of voters that are very typical of. Uh, voters in Wyoming, which is the the large sort of white working class voters. Um, there's recent polling that suggests that um, voters without a uh, college education are the majority of them believe the election was stolen and and want Trump to continue as head of the party. Uh, those Republicans that are um, do have college educations. They tended, the majority of them wanted someone else and acknowledged that the 2020 election was legitimately won by President Biden. Um, but they, um, but there is certainly a feeling that that she has somehow betrayed, you know, turned her back on them uh, among those voters, and that is uh, a feeling that is, I think, not confined to Wyoming, but is sort of broadly in the Republican electorate, uh, you, you see that as a very common uh, sentiment. And again, I'm speaking with Stephanie Moravchik, who's a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, whose research explores the intersections of politics with class, family, and religion. She's the author of American Protestantism in an Age of Psychology, as well as Trump's Democrats, a political ethnography of three blue strongholds that flipped Republican in the 2016 election. And she spent the last year working on a book with John Shields about Liz Cheney's Wyoming and the future of, of the American right. And she has an article with John Shields at the New York Times, Liz Cheney and the Twilight of the Old Republican Elite. So I've been to Wyoming a number of times, uh, mostly to Jackson Hole, which is stunningly beautiful, by the way. It's not somebody that wasn't born here in the United States. In many ways, I don't feel like you've really seen America until you've gone to Wyoming. And you just spent, what, the last year traveling through there. Of course, Jackson Hole is a sort of somewhat liberal enclave. I think there are more millionaires and billionaires per capita in Jackson than anywhere else perhaps in the world. Is that right? Um, I, I don't know all the statistics, but it, it certainly sounds right. It, it, uh, I think there's been a deliberate effort through tax policies and so forth that has um, encouraged that kind of people to to move there, and it, it is uh, magnificent. Um, the, the thing to know, of course, is that it's really seen throughout the rest of Wyoming as a place apart. The standard uh, joke that people in Wyoming tell is, uh, that uh, Jackson or Teton County is just a short drive to Wyoming. Uh, so it, it really doesn't quite capture the rest of the state, which is, you know, it's an energy hub. 
Uh, it's much more rural and small towns sort of dominate. Even their biggest cities are, are really quite modest in size, Cheyenne and Casper. And, and, and so it's not a poor state, but it certainly doesn't, uh, it feels very distant from the extraordinary uh, wealth of, of Teton County and Jackson in that area. But Stephanie, just going back to your article, List Cheney and the Twilight of the Old Republican Elite, tell, explore further, if you will, the notion that liberals many, in many ways have not got it right about why white working class, and particularly in this case, Wyoming's residents voted so overwhelmingly for Trump. And in the, in the case of the elections yesterday for the Trump candidate, because uh, I mentioned uh, Thomas Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas. So I'm just having trouble figuring out why the sort of rugged individualists, the cowboys, etc. What do they see in Trump? What is it about Trump that has given them this sort of loyalty because he's clearly only interested in himself, but somehow or other he's been able to capture a lot of people in this country. Yeah, I think there's two two things, I guess I would say. So the first is is that the argument that we were making in the, in the op-ed is that Democrats sort of need to give a second look to this elite. There had been a lot of uh, this elite in the Republican Party, which was seen uh, seen as only self-dealing by their Republican and I mean, excuse me, by their Democrat and liberal antagonists for many decades in American politics. Uh, and what they missed out on, I think, was the way in which members of this um, sort of uh, uh, Republican establishment did still have very strong commitments to to democratic forms and to a kind of public service to the state. There's a citizen legislature in Wyoming, which means that it's not a professional job to serve. You serve really at some sacrifice uh, of your own time and money. And so we wanted to emphasize the way in which it's important to that that, that this new, much more populist um, sort of insurgency in the Republican Party there uh, seems to be less committed to those important, really critical uh, Democratic and, and Republican norms uh, and not very focused on practical governance for the well-being of of citizens in Wyoming. Um, so that's the, I guess, the first piece. And then the second piece is really looking, if we shift our focus from sort of those old Republican establishment members to sort of ordinary voters, uh, you, the mystery of the appeal of Trump endures. But I think uh, for those of for those of us who don't who don't uh, feel it or get it. Uh, but I think a few things that were very important. Wyoming is uh, very proud. It's a very rural state, as I said, and they have a code of the West, which they uh, believe in and uh, which emphasizes a kind of honor culture and honor culture is a, is really a culture about maintaining one's reputation for, for toughness and unwillingness to, uh, to accept any sort of insult or slight uh, sitting down. You have to answer it and show that you're willing to, you know, to be tough, to even uh, be aggressive if you need to, uh, to kind of restore your reputation. And so it is a place where the the hard work in agriculture, in the energy sector, has maintained a real vivid, I think, uh, uh, honor culture. And Trump himself seems to really understand that culture and, and, and speak through it and uses it to appeal to all kinds of voters in the United States. Um, when we found in our previous book on Democrats who'd flipped for Trump, one thing that really stood out was that uh, the kinds of communities where we were uh, spending a lot of time and talking to people in Kentucky, Iowa, and Rhode Island, uh, that those Democrats really found him to be a very strong man, and they really liked that, and that he understood this honor culture, which was pervasive in their uh, in their own lives, and in Wyoming as well. Uh, there, I think, Trump's appeal to this kind of uh, a sensibility. 
appeals to ordinary voters there. Um, in addition, there used to be more localism. Wyoming voters would be more concentrated on Wyoming issues. But like everyone else in the United States, they're becoming more nationalized. Their focus, their their political imagination and uh, information is more national. They're watching uh, a lot of Fox News and other national outlets. And so suddenly, in addition to sort of issues that normally would um, most concern people in Wyoming, for instance, how livestock or wild animals like wolves are managed, a very state local issue, they're suddenly concerned about illegal immigration, even though Wyoming uh, is not a place that is um, grappling with the challenges of illegal immigration. Uh, they, the legislature, you know, uh, even I believe voted or certainly was going to vote. I think they did send a few thousand dollars down to the border in Texas to help maintain sec border security. This is really not a local issue for people in Wyoming. Um, and so they're becoming more nationalized. And as they are, um, they're, uh, you know, they're learning, they're, they're watching and consuming media that is vilifying Democrats and, and celebrating Trump and, and Trump-like candidates. Well, I thank you for joining us. It sounds as if, you know, what you're telling us is kind of embodied in the success of the one Democrat who seems to be bucking that trend, Vetterman, uh, who's running against Oz in Pennsylvania. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a smart move on the part of Democrats, and I hope they will uh, tune in more to the ways in which the Republicans have been successful. Um, I do think that the style is not merely something superficial. Style conveys a lot of social information. And um, and most voters of whatever education or partisan lean or whatever demographic look for candidates that seem like themselves, that seem because that's how we can trust uh, uh, that that the candidate might represent our way of seeing things and, and our well-being. And so using style, as, a, as certainly that candidate does, to, to kind of reach a, a broader constituency, I think uh, is really a smart move. Well, Stephanie Moravchik, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much. It was fun to talk to you. Well, thank you again, and I'll be speaking with Stephanie Moravchik, who's a professor of government at Claremont McKenna College, whose research explores the intersections of politics with class, family, and religion. She's the author of American Protestantism in an Age of Psychology, as well as Trump's Democrats, a political ethnography of three blue strongholds that flipped Republican in the 2016 election. And she spent the last year working on a book with John Shields about Liz Cheney's Wyoming and the future of the American right. And she has an article with John Shields at the New York Times, Liz Cheney and the Twilight of the Old Republican Elite. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America The quiet voice singing something to me Don't song about the home of the brave in this land here of the free when time was back.
one more light goes out. 